Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The title of this message this morning is The Power of Applause. And I stole that message title from an article that I'm going to read to you from Newsweek magazine. Deborah Schaus wrote an editorial in that magazine, and here's her story. When I was growing up, I envied Sally Culver. Though she was five years younger, she had somehow managed to get herself a fan club. It began one summer evening when Mrs. Culver brought her one-year-old daughter Sally to our house. I want to show you the most remarkable thing, Mrs. Culver told my mother. She set the baby down in our driveway, and Sally, diaper rustling, took a single step. Bravo, Mrs. Culver said, clapping. Wasn't that just marvelous, she asked, turning to me. Now, I was standing back, my jump rope in hand, wondering why anyone would make such a big deal over walking. Weren't her legs just the straightest things you've ever seen, Mrs. Culver gushed to my mother. Her posture is exceptional, my mother said. I took a breath and stood up straighter. My mother didn't notice. Sally took two steps before she plopped down, but again, applause. This time, my mother joined in. I untangled my rope and jumped ten times in a row without missing. No one noticed. My mother was too busy clapping and cheering for Sally. It was my first experience with the power of applause. Paul, the great apostle, became the great apostle because he had someone in his life who knew the power of applause. If you remember last week, I said that to understand the effectiveness of Paul, you have to understand a when and a where. The when was ten years, three in Arabia, seven in Tarsus. But also this week we discover that to understand Paul's effectiveness, there's a whom, a person, called the son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. And we're going to look at him and his relationship to Paul today. I'll say this. Encouragement is the grease that keeps fluid all of the gears of any relationship. We all need it. In fact, when we're down, we always look for people who have this gift. We want to find those encouragers. And when we find them, it's like water to a part soul. One little boy was very forward about his need for encouragement. He said to his dad, Dad, let's play darts. I'll throw, and you say, that was wonderful. He had it all wired. When you think of Paul, you probably immediately don't think of Barnabas. Now, some will if you're Bible students. We know that Paul always had a team. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy. But typically, Paul is big enough a character that he stands alone apart from anybody like Barnabas. But my contention is if we didn't have Barnabas, we wouldn't have Paul. The name Charles Lindbergh, most of you recognize. 1927, he made history as he flew across the Atlantic. But do you ever wonder, who was Charles Lindbergh's mechanic? 
Uh, that would be important to know. It happened to be a guy by the name of Claude Ryan. He built the airplane, the Spirit of St. Louis, that enabled him to make the journey. We don't think of Claude Ryan. We think of Charles Lindbergh. We think of names like Martin Luther. Oh, he started the Great Reformation. He nailed those 95 theses to the castle door in Wittenberg in 1517. But what about Philip Melanchthon? I know, you're going, who? He was the guy behind the scenes that was perhaps the greatest encouragement, theological professor, friend, helped translate the scriptures. It was the real power behind Martin Luther. We know the name Billy Graham. He preached to more people than any human in history, but there are names like George Wilson, Grady Wilson, T.W. Wilson. Yes, they're related. Cliff Barrows, behind-the-scenes guys, not as prominent, but very needful. And so Paul and Barnabas, we said their relationship today. Barnabas, as the title implies, knew the power of applause And we see that power displayed in three different ways this morning in chapter 11. First of all, by following up new converts. A revival breaks out in Antioch. Number two, by furthering a fresh commitment made in that revival. And third, by finding an old comrade. And that is Paul. Let's go back now to, well not go back to, let's begin in chapter 11. Verse 19, and see this first display following up new converts. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, that's modern-day Lebanon, Cyprus and Antioch, or as they say in that part of the world, Antioch. But we won't do that. Preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. You can see what's happening There's a fanning out of this Christian movement. It was once in Damascus. Now it's 300 miles north of Jerusalem. The very movement that Saul of Tarsus was bent on stopping is now uncontrollable. It's everywhere. By the way, that's the theme of the book of Acts. If you remember, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord Jesus tells his disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. The focus now of the book of Acts is the uttermost parts of the earth. The focus now will be, after chapter 11, on how Paul and his team take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. But this is interesting to me. Saul tried to stop the flow and movement of Christianity. And it seems that the more the persecution, the greater the spread. I liken it to trying to put out a campfire with your foot. I don't know if you've ever tried that, but don't. 
use water because you stamp it out with your foot. Your foot creates enough of a draft to take those little embers and shoot them out and start fires everywhere else. And so it's like the devil's trying to stomp it out with his foot and you got all these on-fire Christians going everywhere spreading the gospel. And they go to Antioch, it says. And I want to describe the town to you because it's important later on in the story. You see, Antioch, though it doesn't mean a whole lot to us today, you say, where is that, in Texas somewhere? No, Antioch, according to Josephus, was the third principal city in the Roman Empire. What was the first? Oh, come on, Rome, right? Second was Alexandria, Egypt, and the third was Antioch. Antioch was founded by one of Alexander the Great's four generals, one named Seleucus, named the city after his dad, Antiochus, hence the name Antioch. There were about 500,000 people that lived in that town at this time. And it was very, very cosmopolitan. There were people from all over the world with different backgrounds and different cultures. For instance, there was a large Greek population. There was an enormous Jewish population. There was also a large Roman as well as Oriental population in that city. And it was a college town. One of the early historians, Cicero, says Antioch was a place of learned men and liberal studies. A university city. Oh, here's a piece of trivia as well. Some even believe that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, was from this town. And that's where the gospel has spread. Now, I do want to mention that in verse 20, you see the word Hellenists? There's an in-house debate as to what that means. Some think Hellenists refers to Jewish people who spoke Greek. Others believe it refers to Greeks who were just non-Jewish. They were Gentiles. Now, the word is used both ways in the New Testament and in the book of Acts even. But I believe that what he is speaking about here are Gentile people, Greeks, Hellenists. Hellenistas is the Greek word. It could mean either, but I think it specifically refers here to Gentile, non-Jewish, non-religious of that sort people. Here's why. There's a contrast between verse 19 and verse 20, and you need to notice it. Those who were scattered abroad, verse 19, after the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And notice what they were doing. They were preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Stop right there. Why? Because Christianity, it wasn't even called that yet till we get to the end of verse 26 here. This was a Jewish movement. These were Jewish believers who believed they saw the fulfillment of the Messianic promises in Jesus. This is a Jewish club. will tell this message to Jewish people only. Now look at verse 20. But, now that little contraction is a word of contrast. But, in contrast to that, some of them who were from Cyprus and Cyrene, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. That's significant enough contrast to say that not only was the message given to Jewish people, but to non-Jews, Gentiles. Now, this is huge. This is the first time you ever read in history of this happening. 
The gospel goes not to religious people, not to Jewish people, but to your garden variety pagan person. Gentiles, Hellenists, Greeks, and they hear the gospel. So, the persecution in Jerusalem caused them to scatter. The persecution brought evangelism into these areas. The evangelism led to conversion, both Jew and Gentile. And the conversion now brings an obligation. And what is the obligation? For the Jerusalem church to send people northward, number one, to check it out and make sure it's legit. Is this new church in Antioch preaching the right gospel? Do they understand the right facts of the gospel? Do they really understand who Jesus Christ is? And number two, we have the obligation to nurture this newfound faith and to disciple these people in the Lord. So what do they do? It says, when news came to them, verse 22, to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Now, why did they send him? Why not an apostle? How come Peter didn't get the job? He's a big wig. Now, Barnabas has been in the church all the way back from Acts chapter 4, but why Barnabas? Two reasons, I believe. The first one you may not know about. The second one you probably guessed. First is because he is from Cyprus, the Bible tells us, and there was a huge Cyprian population already in Antioch. He knew the landscape. He was a shoe-in for that place. Number two is because he was an encourager. He knew the power of applause. He knew that you can take a young group of people and either make them or break them by how you treat them. So since this man had a reputation for being large-hearted, loving, encouraging, his name means the son of encouragement, they sent Barnabas. Now if you remember... Well, you probably wouldn't in this study because it goes all the way back to Acts chapter 4. Barnabas is introduced to the church way back then, early on in Jerusalem. Every time you read about this man in Acts, he's an encourager. But he encourages people, not the same way, but in different manners. For instance, in Acts 4, he encourages the church by finances. The Bible says he has a portion, a, a parcel of land... He sells the land, he takes the money from the cell, and he gives it all to the church, lays it at the apostles' feet for whatever they needed. So he encouraged the church by finances. I don't know if you've ever thought about your finances as a means of encouragement, but it can be. Twenty-five years ago, when Lenya and I first came to Albuquerque, a church in Cyprus, California, not the island of Cyprus, heard about this new venture of faith way out east in Albuquerque. And they decided to contribute to Calvary of Albuquerque $1,000. That was a huge amount of income to get this thing started. That was so confirming. It was so encouraging. Somebody once says, money is a lot like manure. Stack it up, it stinks. Spread it around, it'll make things grow. Barnabas figured that out. I've got this land. I'll sell it. Church needs it in Jerusalem. Gave it to the apostles. So he encouraged the church by finances. Then we get to chapter 9 and we discover that 
Barnabas encouraged the church by friendship. By friendship. He was the guy who stood up and staked his reputation for Saul of Tarsus. Nobody wanted anything to do with Saul. He was a firebrand. He was a lightning rod. It was Barnabas who said, this guy's conversion is legit. He's the real deal. Bring him on into the church. But now we see him going up to Antioch, encouraging the church by a third means, by fellowship. Look what it says in verse 23. When he came and he had seen the grace of God... How do you do that? Have you ever seen God's grace? Well, you don't see it per se, but you see the results of God's grace. He came into town and saw changed people. He saw the result of the message. It made him glad. When he had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And look at this. And encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So in chapter 11, this is the second means by which his encouragement is displayed. He is furthering a fresh commitment made by those in Antioch. He encouraged them all. Some of you know that there is a spiritual gift That's right, a special designation, a spiritual gift called the gift of encouragement. The old King Jimmy and the new King James call it exhortation. The gift of exhortation. Better translation, the gift of encouragement. That's his gift. And by the way, that's his name. Barnabas means, as I mentioned, son of encouragement. But did you know that was not his original name? That wasn't his birth name. He had a whole different name. This was a nickname given him by somebody else. Let's find out who. Got to do this. Acts chapter 4. Go back just a few chapters. Acts chapter 4. Verse 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, or if you have a different translation, might be Joseph. And Joseph, or Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles. They gave him the nickname, which is translated son of encouragement a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It's the same word as we just read in chapter 11. Paraklesis or parakaleo. One's a noun, one's a verb. It simply means to call alongside someone who will help you. Or it means, as a person, I will come alongside somebody who needs my help. That's the idea. And that's what exhortation or encouragement is. I'm going to come alongside someone and help them mature, grow further along in their faith. I'll never forget an interesting conversation I once had with a man who had a scowl on his face. And he said, I have the gift of exhortation. 
I knew by the way he said it, he had no clue as to what that meant. Because doesn't it sound weird if I say, I have the gift of encouragement. It's a paradox. You don't say that like that. You see, some people think that the gift of exhortation means, I have the gift of condemnation. I'm the Holy Spirit finger pointer. I'm the God squad. I'm the sin sniffer. It all stops here. The clearinghouse of all truth comes through me because I have the gift of exhortation. Now, this is truly a gift of encouragement. Encouragement. A needed gift. We have all, at some point or another, overheard Christians talking and their conversation is not very encouraging. Truth be told, it's very discouraging. It's funny how they love to do it in the name of God. Let me just say, if you're a a non-believer this morning as a visitor or a young believer, on behalf of the body of Christ, I apologize for all the conversations you have had to have heard over the years by people who call themselves His children. Henry Drummond once said, How many prodigals are kept out of the kingdom of God by those unlovely characters who profess to be inside? No, as believers... We ought to be more on the side of those who understand grace. William Barclay said, One of the highest human duties is the duty of encouragement. It's easy to pour cold water on people's enthusiasm. It's easy to discourage others. The world is full of discouragers. But we have a Christian duty to encourage one another. Many a time, a word of praise or thanks or appreciation or cheer has kept a man on his feet. That's the power of applause. Atta boy, keep at it. You're doing great. So, Mr. Encouragement comes to town. He sees what God is doing and he doesn't scowl and say, no, wait a minute. I have the gift of exhortation. He was glad. And notice what he says. He encouraged them that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Can you hear them? I know it's hard being a Christian here in Antioch. I know this is a tough town. But listen, you've got to be resolved to persevere. Hang in there. Get over the next hump. Stay close to the Lord. Don't stop. Stick it out. I imagine that being a Christian was very difficult in Antioch with all of its paganism, with all of its political intrigue, with all of that mix of different ideologies, you couldn't be a spiritual cream puff and last very long in Antioch. You needed help. And the help was in the form of Barnabas. I've often thought that a relationship with Christ is similar to a marriage relationship. It takes a commitment. Every counselor, every pastor has had people come into their office and say, well, we married each other five years ago, but we've lost our feelings for one another. We don't have the same feelings that we once had about each other. Now, folks, if you expect to get married and maintain the same fervor and intensity and level of feelings you had on your wedding day or honeymoon, we'll see you for counseling soon enough. It ain't going to happen. 
No, the relationship morphs. It changes. It matures. It gets better. But you need somebody to help you over some of those humps sometime for longevity's sake. And a relationship with Christ can be like that. You make a commitment. It's exciting. You feel great. But you won't necessarily feel the same way you do the moment you give your life to Christ or the first week that you do. There comes a point where the old nature kicks in and fights it and cries out for relief. I don't know if I like this. I didn't sign up for that. Several years ago, I had a friend named Jerry... I've lost contact with him, but he was he majored in the great outdoors. I mean, literally. He went to college to become a park attendant. And he knew the great outdoors. He was an expert backpacker. I was not. He decided that I needed to see something very beautiful in Death Valley, California. By the way, they named that place very appropriately. Death Valley. I thought I almost met mine on one particular day. He wanted to hike from the floor of the valley to alpine level in a single, grueling day. I said, okay, I'll do it. Dumb. (laughs) Put a backpack on. Again, he's an expert backpacker. I am not. After, you know, I think it was a long time, 15 minutes... It grew into several hours. I'm thinking, this is stupid. I'm walking up a hill to see something. Well, he was not only an expert backpacker, he was an expert encourager. And I still remember some of the phrases. Skip, don't stop. It's worth it. Wait till you see the view. You see the shadow, the circle of the earth. You can see it nowhere else like this. And he just kept describing how beautiful it's going to be. Now I'm thinking, why can't we just camp here? He goes, oh, no, no, no. Up there is better. And I made it. And I wouldn't have made it unless Jerry was there to say, you can make it. Wait till you see it. I think a relationship with God is similar. We kind of get stuck and we need somebody to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Keep going. It's better up there. It's better further on. And the encouragement of another can make all the difference in the world. So we encourage them to stay with the Lord. Now look at verse 25 and 26. This is where we end it. The third slice of this, the third display of applause is by finding an old comrade. Look at verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. We found him. He brought him to Antioch so that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples were first called Christians In Antioch. Okay, over in Tarsus, there's a man that's been waiting seven years named Saul. He had a vision from Christ that one day he would bear the name of Jesus to kings, Gentiles, and the children of Israel. But he's been waiting a long time, and nobody from Jerusalem has come knocking on his door. And he's probably thinking, I don't know what I ate that night on the Damascus Road, but I don't know if this will ever happen. That's over in Tarsus. Over in Antioch is a guy named Barnabas who's surveying the spiritual landscape and he's thinking, now who can I get to help me here? Who out there knows Greek culture, Roman politics, and Jewish religion? I know exactly who. There's only one guy. It's that Saul guy. 
who seven years ago I introduced to the church in Jerusalem. He's sitting somewhere over in Tarsus. I'm going to find him. So it says he went to seek for him. And the word seek means to hunt down or to search for someone in the midst of difficult circumstances. Hard to imagine today. You want to get a hold of someone, you get on your cell phone. He couldn't do that. There were no operators in those days. He couldn't Google search Saul of Tarsus. Boom. Oh, great, there he is. Put in my GPS unit and off I go. He had to physically leave one city and go through the town of Tarsus and shout out the name. Hey, have you guys heard of a guy named Shaul who lives in Tarsus? I have a hunch he's preaching the name of Jesus. Oh, yeah, we know who he is. And they found him, and he brought him. He brought him, and they became a team together for a while. This is the power of applause. The power of applause of encouragement, first by finances, then by friendship, then by fellowship, now by fitting someone just right as part of the team in Antioch. In fact, get this, I love this part. When you read the lineup of these two together, you begin reading Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas' name is always first. You know why? He was the He was the major leaguer. Saul of Tarsus was the minor league, the protege. Until you get to chapter 13. Chapter 13, there's an interesting switch. It's not Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Throughout the rest of the story until they finally split company. We'll read that in Acts 15. So here's Barnabas. A guy from Jerusalem sees the need, pushes up Saul higher, higher, higher till he himself becomes less significant. That takes humility. That's like John the Baptist. When he met Jesus, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. Same heart as Barnabas had. Dwight Moody used to say, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he serves. And again, I'll say it. If you didn't have Barnabas, you wouldn't have Saul. If you didn't have Barnabas, you'd have half of the New Testament missing. Because Paul the Apostle wrote 13 apostles, apostles, epistles from the Apostle. And it was Barnabas who brought him into that venue. Verse 26, it mentions that they were first called Christians in Antioch. Understand that the term Christian was not coined by Christ. He didn't one day go, now what am I going to call my new movement? Christians. He never called his followers that. The followers themselves never called themselves Christians. They called themselves beloved, faithful, saints, brethren. The Jews never gave him that name. They never would admit that they're followers of the Christ, the Messiah. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. This was a term coined by people in Antioch who, in observing these new believers, noted the intensity, the devotion to Jesus Christ, and they called them Christians. Now, I want to close this morning with a couple of lessons. 
couple of things to write down if you're in the mode of writing. First of all, it's this. Less known does not mean less important. Barnabas today is certainly less known than Paul. But where would Paul be without Barnabas? Where would Luther be without Melanchthon? Where would Lindbergh be without Ryan? These less important or less known were not less important. They were very needed. And Paul the Apostle will say concerning the body of Christ, some parts of the body that seem to be the weakest and least important are really the most necessary. Here's my point for you. You may or may not be apostle material. That doesn't matter. You may be Barnabas material. You might be the kind of a person who will be responsible because of the gift of encouragement, not exhortation, encouragement for somebody like Paul to be successful. Second lesson, and I close with this, little things can have big impact. Little words of encouragement. I believe in you. You're going to make it. We'll make it together. I'm by you. I see the Lord in you. Keep going. Those little things can have huge, huge impact. As one person said, a pat on the back, though only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, is miles ahead in results. (laughs) The church desperately needs encouragers. The writer of Hebrews said, Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want to close with a story. I opened with a story about a baby named Sally Culver. She had the fan club, remember? I want to close with a story about another babe. This is Babe Ruth. And it's the story of the man who came to see Babe Ruth after a time of failure. When I decided to meet Babe Ruth and get an autograph from him, I couldn't have selected a more inappropriate time. It was a balmy evening in May of 1935. Earlier that day, the great home run slugger had struck out three times while playing for the Boston Braves against the Pittsburgh Pirates. The fans booed him unmercifully. As I was to learn, he was feeling pretty low. I went to the Babes Hotel in Pittsburgh that night and phoned him from the lobby. I collect autographs, I told him. You sure you want my autograph after I made such a fool of myself today? He grunted. I assured him I most definitely did. So the babe gave me his room number and invited me up. This would never happen today. He told me the door was open and I was just to walk in. When I entered the room, I was saddened to see the king of SWAT wearing an old blue robe laying on the Davenport. Picture of dejection. He was then 40 years old and his career was just about over. He signed his autograph beneath his picture in my book and then looked up and said... I feel so terrible. Not only did the fans boo me, but some idiot spat on me. I guess he was mad because he paid to see me hit a home run. I tried to console the big slugger by saying, Ah, forget today. Tomorrow's another day. I have enough confidence in you to predict that tomorrow you'll be the hero of the game. Do you really mean that, kid? He said, sitting up. 
When I said that I did, he went on, Well, I'll be. I'm going to autograph this baseball, too. It was used in batting practice. Don't you wish you had that ball? (laughs) I went home that evening thinking about the babe and hoping that my prediction would come true. Well, the next afternoon, I anxiously tuned into the game. Babe Ruth was making a comeback. He hit three home runs, the second being the only ball ever hit over right field grandstand at Forbes Field. He was the hero once again. Those three homers, numbers 712, 713, and 714, turned out to be the last in Babe Ruth's illustrious career. He retired from baseball just eight days later. Now, am I saying that it's because of that man's visit that he hit those three home runs? Not necessarily, but I bet it had a lot to do with it. That kind of encouragement, exhortation, went a long way. Let's pray for it. Dear Lord, When you sent Jesus Christ into this world, you were making a statement that you loved us enough to redeem us and would do anything to achieve that redemption. It's that kind of heart that Barnabas had, who saw something in Saul, who saw something in that church, who saw something in that city that demanded the need of Saul to meet with that group, So much so that the people of Antioch took note and said, Here are ardent, devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that we would not only look for encouragers, but be the kind that would applaud those around us, our brothers and sisters, to keep going, to persevere, to be resolved, to follow you and to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.